Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. I'm so glad you are here today. Uh, can we just kind of, like, I just want to thank our team so far. I mean, I, like, if I never came up today, this has already been amazing, right? So can we just say thank you to an incredible team? There are so many people behind the scenes that you don't see that come in. They work hard in the morning. They're setting up. They're mixing. They're video switching. They're preparing the place for kids to have an encounter with Christ that leads to life change. All that's happening, and um, just sitting over there, I was like, man, this is such a gifted group of people who just generously give their gifts and abilities and passions, and um, so we're so grateful, because this is a church, literally, that would not happen if it wasn't for people volunteering their time, their passion, their resources, and um, that's the secret sauce. That's the secret recipe, right? Like, we're not KFC. We don't have some kind of secret thing over here. It's really clear what makes this church extraordinary besides the God that we serve is the people who serve here. And so just thank you for them, and so just thank you for allowing me to have that moment. Um, if you're new here today, I want to kind of catch you up. Last weekend was a holiday weekend, and I know so many of us were traveling and kind of bouncing around. And um, kind of in the last few weeks, just everything our nation was dealing with and preparing the message that was originally going to be on generosity last week, I just had a sense. I'm like, man, I don't want to press in the generosity conversation right now. I want to I want to press into the bigger conversation, something that has been playing out across the board, even that's been registered with pollsters over the last few years, which is this really strange thing with Americans specifically, where for the most part, the, the number of people who feel like they're doing okay has increased. And while the number of people who feel like they're doing okay is increasing, simultaneously, the number of people who feel like the that our nation is not doing okay is decreasing drastically. So we have this strange kind of K curve, if you want to speak specifically about what's going on. It's like there's our lives individually feel like they're going up, like they feel like they're okay, but the, the world just feels like a dumpster fire. Right? One of my favorite memes, because I um, communicate to my wife with visual pictures in our text message. If you were to scroll through, you're like, do you guys ever talk to each other? Because it's just pictures back and forth, right? And my favorite one to send to her over the last couple years is a, a picture of a flood with a dumpster kind of washing through the middle of the street and a fire inside of the dumpster. Because I'm just, she's like, how'd it go today? And I'm like, Pshoom. and it's just that because I love it. It's just like, it wasn't just a dumpster fire. It was a dumpster fire being carried along by a flood. You know, and that's just slightly dramatic, but that's what I do in my text messaging. When my, that's how I keep the romance alive, you know? She's like, you had me with that river-swept dumpster fire, honey. I'm like, I, girl, I know it, right? Um, so that, that, that kind of captures what so many of us feel like is happening around us when we watch the news, when we kind of see what's playing out, whether it's financial or whether it's global or whether it's nationally with the tragedies we dealt with. And so last week... Um, I started a conversation around the book um, that's in the Old Testament that perhaps most of us have never even read before. It's a really powerful, compelling book. It's three chapters long. It was written 2,600 years ago, and it's named after the author, the book of Habakkuk. Now, Habakkuk, like I said last week, is a really tricky book. Like right now, if you offered me a million dollars and you said, can you spell it on the spot, I probably could not, Okay. Um, still couldn't spell Habakkuk, but it is probably one of the most compelling kind of inch-for-inch books of a transformation of what it looks like to journey through tragedy. And that um, Habakkuk 
actually introduces us to that. And so that, that was last week. So if you're new, I encourage you to download the app, um, kind of lean into that, um, or on our Facebook page or YouTube page. You can kind of catch up uh, on what we've talked about. Because today is a continuation of that. I ended with chapter 1, and I want to pick up with chapter 2. But before I get there, before we jump 2,600 years um, into the past, let's travel around halfway around the globe to Europe, to the city of Hamburg, um, who has a problem. A problem that if you lived in the area that's known as St. Pauli District, you would instantly recognize it. See, the St. Pauli District is famous for its nightlife. Some of its nightlife is of the seedy variety. So it's definitely an interesting <laughs> after-hours experience. But what happens is that in the morning when the sun is coming up and the people who have come there to party have left, the people who live in that community notice a very distinct odor. It's um, the odor that I believe that the city of Boston pumps into every elevator um, on the subway line. It's the smell of urine, right? Um, so people who live in the St. Pauli area, they smell it because what happens is people stumble out of the bars and the other seedy establishments that are around there that I'm not going to get into. And, um, and they essentially have nature's call and have no bathroom nearby, and so they see a wall. Now, this happens a lot to the point that it smells really, really bad in the St. Pauli area. And... And if you kind of want to get a sense, not just for the odor, but for the impact financially, budget-wise, while I don't know Hamburg's budget, I was able to find another city in the United Kingdom that spends about $125,000 a year on cleaning up urine smells in the city. So what Hamburg did that was genius is they found a company that makes a super hydrophobic um, paint coating. And they started painting the walls with this super hydrophobic paint, which when you would go to relieve yourself on the wall, because of the nature of how that paint works, the, the fluid bounces right back off. And so they begin to put this sign up around the area. It says, do not pee here, we pee back. They had walls that pee back on you. If you hit that wall, it hit you back, and you learned. And what they noticed was that the frequent urinations and the urine smell started to decrease because the walls started peeing back on people. You wanted to get rid of it. You didn't want to wear it, and they started wearing it. Now, this is actually caught on and is starting to spread around the globe. San Francisco is currently experimenting with this paint because while it may cost 100000 plus to have supplies and cleaners constantly keeping that smell at bay, for about a $700 a can, you can treat an entire wall a year. So this is a genius move. Now, why I like this is because this illustrates something about human beings that maybe you and I forget. We are really, really good at learning lessons that have instant feedback baked in. I have a toddler, and I've noticed with him when I say, don't do this, it's going to hurt you. He doesn't listen very well. But when it hurts him, he doesn't repeat it anymore because he learned the lesson. It's a really good lesson. Instant feedback, pain. But part of the challenge when we're walking through tra tragedy, part of the challenge is that most of the human 
experience isn't instant feedback. We make choices. We plant choices that sometimes takes a whole season or years to grow into consequences. And this disconnect, this kind of distance, makes life a little harder for us. And, it, and in the midst of this gap, there is a pain that comes. And I think this is probably most pronounced, this dynamic of delayed consequences is, pro, is probably most pronounced at the, at the like society level. And so as a nation, we're walking through a lot of tragedies, and it's really hard sometimes to understand because the causes of these things aren't yesterday. They're deeply rooted. They're seeds that have been planted a long time ago that's been growing. And I think it takes a different posture. It takes a different humility to lean into that, to see the disconnect. And it's this tendency to only learn lessons that are instantly that, that keeps us from being able to make progress. And what I want to do today is kind of build on that dynamic by going back to Habakkuk. Because I talked about society level, I talked about this tendency, but what if you're the one? It's not the world that feels like it's falling apart. What if it is your world that feels like it's falling apart? And so here's my gift to you today. For some of you, your world is not falling apart. It feels really good right now. And you want to keep it that way. But your world will eventually fall apart. It's not a matter of if. It is a matter of when. And for some of you, here and online, your world is falling apart. And you feel it. And Habakkuk doesn't just speak to societal levels. Like when we started with Habakkuk last week. This was his description to God. He says, God, destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abound. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked, him and the righteous, so that justice is perverted. Habakkuk is angry because of what he's watching happening at the societal level. The world is falling apart. And he's like, God, what are you doing? God, where are you? And that the book of Habakkuk is a gift to us because at the very beginning of the book, this man who loves God is struggling to understand God and why God's allowing things to happen in the world around him. And so he's crying out and he's screaming. But something happens in the book of Habakkuk that I think is specifically relevant for those who are living in the midst of their own world falling apart, not just the world falling apart. Because there's a shift that occurs. In fact, when we left the message last week, Habakkuk was here in verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, I will stand at my watch and I will station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what you will say to me and what answer I am give to this complaint. He's essentially like, God, things are not going well. I'm crossing my arms and I'm standing right here. I'm waiting on your answer. What is it, God? Tell me. And what's fascinating is I'm going to sum up the next two chapters pretty quickly. But I would encourage you to go back and read through this book. It's really interesting. It's because after verse 1 in Habakkuk chapter 2, there is time that goes by. It's not obvious when you read it at a surface level. But there's tense shifts, there's descriptors, there's 
words being used by Habakkuk that moves from the enemy out there is coming to get us, the world around me is struggling and falling apart, to a shift towards now my world is falling apart. The enemy is no longer coming. The enemy has arrived. Things are not going to be hard. Things are now very difficult. And Habakkuk's world is falling apart. And what Habakkuk does is so interesting. So watch this. He goes from this like defiant toddler stance. Like, no. God, tell me. Why? Why, God? What are you doing? He makes a shift. So by the end of chapter 3, he says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. And if you just read this book, without the awareness of time passing and what's playing out, we can miss, and this can feel almost disorienting. He goes from toddler stance, God, what are you doing, to worshiping. Like, how in the world does he do that? And yet, the gift that God has given us through the book of Habakkuk is that we watch him go through this journey so it can help us shortcut our own journeys when we feel like our world is falling apart. So that's what today I want to look at because it's it's how you and I can find hope in the midst of darkness. And like I said, some of us, our world is falling apart. Some of us, our world is not. So this message is for both of us. For some of you, it's a time-delayed message, and for some of you, it's timely. So let's jump in. So, this is where I want to start. Jerry Seinfeld, who said one time in a Tim Ferriss podcast, pain is knowledge rushing to fill the body. Jerry Seinfeld, I think, understood something very insightful that actually helps us to explain what's playing out in the midst of Habakkuk's transformation. He goes on to illustrate his very insightful statement. He says, you didn't know that the post of your bed was not where you thought it was. Anybody ever experienced the the post of the bed who surprisingly moved on you in the middle of the night? He says, but when your foot hits it, that knowledge is going to come rushing in really fast. You learn the lesson really quickly where that post now is and where you thought it was, the gap. And he says, it's going to really hurt when your foot hits that post because that was a piece of knowledge that you didn't have, that you're going to to get. See, pain, oftentimes the pain in life that we experience is pain, it's just knowledge rushing into the gap that we have. We oftentimes have those gaps, we're not aware of those gaps, and then we walk through tragedy, we walk through disappointment, you know, relationally, I didn't know that they could do something like that. I I couldn't believe They said that to me. It's a knowledge gap. That knowledge gap gets filled very quickly, and we call it pain. And what you're going to watch from chapter 2 to chapter 3 as the world moves to Habakkuk's world is now falling apart is a series of pain, pressure points, frustrations, challenges that is the gap being filled. 
And there are two gaps that get filled in the, ba- the book of Habakkuk in chapter 2 and chapter 3. And I would just challenge you that right now, wherever you are in your life, if you're feeling like your world is falling apart, there is a chance that that pain is there to help you identify the gaps in your life. Pain was designed to be a gift and a protector for us. I appreciate the nerve cells that tell me the stove is hot. And it's on me to respond to those nerve cells, trying to educate me to that knowledge gap. And pain in our life, in our relational life, in our financial life, right? You can't overspend what you don't have. That gap gets filled. And it's insanity when we keep experiencing the same pain over and over and we refuse to learn the lesson. But fortunately for us, Habakkuk learns his lesson. And there's two verses that I, I, I think summarize the two lessons that he learns. The first is um, God gives a series of statements in chapter 2 where he begins to press into um, what's going on in Habakkuk's world, the nation, and the Babylonian people who are coming to conquer Israel at the time. Right? God makes a series of what we would call woe-to-me statements, woe-to-him statements, um, which is essentially this recognition of, like, this is bad, this is injustice, this is sinful, this is wrong. And so God kind of unleashes a series of woe statements that's an indictment of all the things that are broken in the society where Habakkuk is living and and in the society that is about to conquer the the nation that Habakkuk lives in. He says, Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. Uh, At this point, speaking of the Babylonian Empire and Nebuchadnezzar, who had definitely built an empire on, or will build his empire on crushing and destroying and uh, wiping out civilizations. And what he's doing there is actually in the series of woe to me statements He societally is pulling from all these different levels. This book is so fascinating because there's so much depth in the word choices that God and Habakkuk are using. But God kind of walks through and says, systemically, societally, individually, there is brokenness everywhere. This injustice is everywhere, and I'm not okay with it. And this is a really helpful thing that shouldn't be taken for granted. It shouldn't be rushed to pass. This is a pain gap for Habakkuk. So um, a few years ago, I was um, volunteering fairly regularly in my daughter's class. So I would come in, and um, it was like an hour. And so, you, you know, it's like 16, 17 kids. So after a while, you start to kind of pick up on things pretty quickly. And I remember the first time being there. There's a group of boys over here. And the teacher looks at them and says, well, that was unexpected. You're talking while I'm talking. And I'm like, oh, ooh. Mm-hmm, right? Now, I, I grew up in a different age where, not saying it was right, it's terrifying, but, like, teachers would take you into back rooms and they could, like, hit you with things, right? Like, that was, the, that was when I was growing up, right? Like, that doesn't happen. That's called assault now. But, like, in my day, it was called education. I mean, they literally would take you. Like, I grew up at an elementary school, and there was an abandoned library adjacent to my second-grade class. And if you were not listening, you got hit with the ruler. And if the ruler was not teaching you the lesson, then the, the 
paddle that she had named with holes in it so it could move faster was then, um, you know, that was introduced in conversation. And you had to be taken into a private room. And, like, now I look back and I'm like, what in the world was that? Right? But, so, you know, that's, that, this is the first time I've been in a second grade classroom in a really long time. So I'm having some, like, flashbacks, right? And I'm like, boys, you better, woo, bring that in. There's an abandoned library somewhere, and you gonna, it's going to come down. So I come back the next time, and I'm sitting in there, and it's like I hear, because they're slapping each other at this point. She's like, well, that was unexpected, that you're hitting one another while in class. We don't use our hands while in class. And I'm like, oh. And then the next time and the next time, around the fifth or sixth time, I, I have heard, well, that was unexpected every single time I'm in the classroom with the same kids. And I'm over here, and I'm doing my piece because I'm volunteering. And in my head, I'm starting to, like, get really frustrated. And I'm going home, and I'm like, Jenny, this teacher keeps saying that was unexpected. But it is not unexpected. I now expect those kids to do that every time I'm in that room. And so she was like, I mean, literally, I go in the next time. Well, that was unexpected. And I want to be like, that was not expected. What was expected of all the things that I came thinking today was going to happen was exactly that. I expected that they would do that and you would say it was unexpected. And Jenny's like, well, it's the new discipline style. And I'm like, well, that is dumb. Because these kids do it every single time I'm there. This is completely to be expected. Right? And I think what God is doing in Habakkuk chapter 2 is actually making the same statement. Not that statement. He's actually making the truthful statement of woe to him, woe to him, woe to him. He's like, Habakkuk, Habakkuk why are you surprised by how broken things are? I mean, I have this conversation with my daughter, who's 10, about my son, who's 2. Sometimes she comes running at me, Daddy, Daddy, Henry did this. And I'm like, time out, boo. Has he ever done that before? Well, yeah, he does that every time we do this. So this was not a surprise to you. I mean, I guess not. I guess he does this every time we play together doing that. So, like, why are you surprised, sweetie? Like, I get the sadness, but why are you surprised by your brother? Like, what should surprise you is when he doesn't do it. You should actually fully expect, if you're playing trains, that things are going to devolve about five minutes later because you're going to start bumping into each other's face and he's going to want the train that you have. Like, that's what you should expect. And she gets surprised by the very thing that she could have scheduled because it was going to happen. And Habakkuk, God is like, Habakkuk, why are you surprised by the brokenness? Not just at societal level, but in the individual level too. Why does that surprise you that people hurt you? Why does it surprise you that people, when given power that's unchecked and unaccountable, that they use it to abuse and misuse people? Why are you surprised by that, Habakkuk? I'm not surprised by it, and you shouldn't either. But Habakkuk was walking through the emotional pain of the world kind of, and his world falling apart, and he feels it, and God's like, Habakkuk, you knew that was coming. I think sometimes we get surprised by what 
we know we could put on our schedule. And what this does is this creates a gap of expectations for people. This creates a gap of what we think people should do. In reality, they don't. If you're a parent, your kids are not going to listen to you sometimes. Or a lot of times. Right? I mean, like, and if you're a parent, that means sometimes you're going to engage in psychological warfare. I did it this morning. My son didn't want to wear something. And I was like, oh, I want to wear that. Oh, I'm going to get that. Take it off so I can wear it. And it's like, you know, it's like, I expect that he's going to do that. I have strategies that are in place prepared for him to do that. That's just navigating life. It doesn't take away the sadness. It doesn't take away the hurt. It doesn't take away a grief. But what it does is it puts us in a frame to stop reacting and start responding. And this is what this declaration God does of like, Habakkuk, why are you surprised by the brokenness? It is the very thing you should expect in this world. But he doesn't stop there. He keeps going. He makes this statement. He says, but the Lord, towards the end, is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. He's like, Habakkuk, the world is broken, but I am not stopping there. I am the God of justice. I am the God who is different. I am not some version of you that's got his act together with a beard who's been alive for a really long time sitting up in heaven. I am not some better version of humans. I am God, holy, distinct, different, set apart, not even, like, you don't have a box for me, Habakkuk, so quit putting me in your stupid, tiny box. Like, why the earth should be silent before him is because when you don't know what you understand, you just shut your mouth. You don't argue because you recognize, oh, whoa. God makes the declaration, he is the God of justice. He's like, look, the circumstances are crazy, but my character is unchanged. I'm still in control. I'm still sitting in heaven above all of these other crazy things, Habakkuk. I'm not caught off guard. I'm not surprised. I'm in control. And when God is in control, we can gain a little bit more control of what feels like out of control inside of us. We stop reacting. We start responding because we are not on shaky, uncertain ground. We're standing on solid ground. It's like circumstances are crazy, but I'm unchanging. And I alluded to this last week. I love science. I mean, I really do. I'm not going to rehash what I said. I would encourage you to go back and listen to it because we leaned into this. But um, I do keep up with scientific literature, and I do follow things on Instagram from people who take pictures of the sky because I don't care about what people eat, um, but I do care about cool pictures they take in outer space. And this was one of them that I just saw. Now, from a distance, you'd look at this, and you'd have, like, what in the world? Looks like some red clay macro photo. But this was a photo, a long exposure photo taken, pointed directly at the core of the Milky Way. So our, our like subdivision. And every one of these little red dots that are so immense and dense that it looks like grains of sand is a star. 
to give you context, these little gaps here, those aren't gaps. Those are clouds of dust that are millions of light years wide that are just so thick that light can't pass through that's behind it. This is just a tiny little section of the sky with how many stars are burning right now in that tiny little section. And a star is the sun. And then Hubble comes along and takes the ultra deep field photo um, not too long ago. And, and in a, an area of space smaller than a grain of rice, it returns back to us a picture that is one of the most stunning pictures to ever look at in human existence, second to, I'm sure, your child, but not my children. This is more impressive to me, okay? Because this is a picture of 10,000 galaxies. 10,000 galaxies in a tiny space that is about the size of a grain of sand that prior to Hubble taking this picture was completely black and dark, and they had no idea anything was there. And what does Hubble return back to them? Not pictures of stars like what we just saw. No, these are galaxies like our galaxy that's filled with billions and billions of stars. And this is trillions upon trillions upon trillions upon trillions of stars that we cannot even wrap our mind with. And it is a grain of rice in a black speck of sky. And our God sits in his temple and he is the architect of this thing. He made that thing, yes. And for all of human existence, up until Hubble taking a picture of it, we had no idea that was even there. No even clue that it was there. But I think what helped Habakkuk, and the reason I do this now, is because you have to remember, for a majority of human existence, there was not a such thing as light pollution. Have you ever traveled somewhere where you get outside of light pollution? You get away from the city and you see the sky. For all of human existence, when humans were going to bed, they would look up to the heavens and they would see a sky filled with the Milky Way galaxy and all of these stars. And it made them feel small because it was reminding them of how big the God of the universe really was. But you and I, when's the last time you've looked up at the sky? When's the last time you've seen a star? It's almost impossible because there's so much light coming from this area that it just washes it all away. And yet, if you can get away from it, you're mine. And, and so I think Habakkuk gets this lesson a whole lot faster than we do because we're people who've conquered, we've landed on the moon, we've sent rockets up into the sky. And I'm so grateful that Hubble sent this picture back because we started getting a little big in our britches thinking we understood how this thing worked. And we're like, yep, God, we got, we got this, God. You're good. You're, you're. We, we kind of sort of worked it out. Like we understand it. And then Hubble comes and mic drops. I mean, these specks that you see here are galaxies. I mean, this is like God doing a mic drop through Hubble. He is in his holy temple. Let the earth be silent. And this is why I think you see the shift that happens. It's why all of a sudden, towards the end of the chapter, Habakkuk has hope. Because it's about to get, it's about to get lit 
in this last final section here. Okay, it is amazing. This is what Habakkuk writes. Okay, I wanted you to understand, I had to summarize a whole two chapters to get the essence so you can see what Habakkuk is about to say and how strong it is. Because Habakkuk, after all of that, says, Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. I only give you the bottom portion of that passage. This is what he said right before he said that. And just in case you're not picking up because you're not knee-deep in 2,600-year-old like Israeli lifestyle, let me walk you through what he just did here with his own mic drop. He says, though the fig tree does not bud, figs were niceties. They were delicacies in ancient Israel. The fig was something that you enjoyed very rarely, but you didn't need it for life. He says, though the fig tree does not bud, he's like, even if the, my luxury things are gone, I'll rejoice and praise the Lord. And then he says, though there are no grapes on the vine. He's like, even if my wine has been taken away, which was the predominant form of drink separate from water, right? The world had not yet been blessed with coffee and tea or Coca-Cola or right, whatever it is that you love. He's like, so even if all I'm stuck with is dirty old stream water, I will praise the Lord. Because I'm still okay. He says, though the olive crop fails, that's a little bit of a problem. The olive was used for its oil. And the oil is what you use to cook with. And the oil is what you use to light your home with. So now he's like, even if I'm eating cold Pop-Tarts in a dark house, I will praise the Lord. He says, and if the field produces no food, so now there is nothing to eat, and I'm starving. I will praise the Lord. Though there are no sheep in the pen, though there is no clothes on my back, though there is no financial means to make money, I will praise the Lord. And there is no cattle in the stalls. Now, he's not talking about losing hamburgers. Some of us just panicked. They, they weren't eating cows. It was actually greater than that. Cows were the mechanisms for society. It's how crops got planted. It was the machinery. It was the factories of their day. Because what their legs could do and what their hineys could produce kept the whole agricultural society moving in ancient Israel. And so he has gone from like luxury items to all of the economic structures in our nation have completely fallen apart yet i will rejoice in the lord yet i will praise the lord like society is falling apart and he's like i've still decided why because the the pain came rushing in the knowledge got fulfilled the world is broken i expect it but my god is still in control even when my circumstances do not feel like they're controllable my God is in his temple. He's sitting above all of the insanity that I'm navigating. So I can be sure even if life around me falls apart, the God who holds my life will not. And then, and then he says this. You ready? 
He says, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. Now, I know that we don't obsess with words the way I obsess with words. But this phrase right here, oh, that phrase right there, the only time that phrase is used in the entire Old Testament outside of the Psalms, which were the worship songs of the day. So Psalms, kind of the songbook, kind of, you know, and when we sing, we're like, it's a lot more poetic, a lot more picturesque, a lot more ideal, right? We're like, Lord, we'll love you. We're going to live for you. I lift my hands. I'm never going to disobey. And then we like scream at our spouse when we walk out of here. And we like kept that promise for like half a second, right? Right? I mean, so there's a lot of ideal in our singing. Not a lot of real sometimes. I mean, we do that with our romantic songs, too. It's not just our religious songs. It's like, girl, I'll climb the highest mountain. I'll swim the lowest valley. And she's like, hey, can, um, can you take the trash out? And he's like, your leg's broke. <laughs> now, he's just calling Delilah 30 minutes ago and saying, Delilah, can you, I want to send this song. I knew I loved you before I met you. I knew there was no place I would go to serve you, to follow you. You set my heart on fire until you ask me to do something. <laughs> then you're lazy. Right? I mean, so it's, it's just a human tendency. But what Habakkuk does is he takes something out of the ideal and he pulls it into the real. This isn't an ideal statement for him. This is why you don't see this phrase anywhere else in the Old Testament. Because it's, it's too real. I mean, it's too ideal to be real. It's the strongest the Hebrew is two Hebrew words, because this is what Habakkuk is written in originally in the language of the day, is Hebrew. The two Hebrew words are the two, it is the strongest way to say God's name in the entire Old Testament. Now remember, this is a guy at the very beginning of this book looking up to heaven and saying, God, what are you doing? God, where are you? His view of God was shaky. His ground was shaky. And now he is writing towards the end of this book the sovereign Lord. Like he has become absolutely convinced that God is a firm foundation, that he is a rock, that he can stand on him. And he uses the strongest name possible to speak to God. And that, man, when just reading it, you're like, wow. You can see Habakkuk's transformation just in the words that he chooses. He's not saying sovereign Lord at the beginning. He's like, God... And this one is like reverence and power and recognition of who's really in control and who's the provider and who's the strength and who's the savior, who's the rescuer and the deliverer. But he doesn't just stop there. It's not just this shift. It's actually in the real. He says, he is my strength. He, he enables me to go on the heights. He, Habakkuk goes and pulls an image that anybody living in that area would have instantly caught on. It's this image of these deer, these mountain goats, who just bound up mountains as if they're nothing. You ever seen a mountain goat? Like, they've got straight verticals that make NBA players, like, just jealous. Because they can be standing on a tiny rock about this big, and they can just leap straight vertical onto another rock and land with perfect balance. And they can just do that up the mountain. They're not breaking a sweat. It's just Monday for them. It's what you do. 
And Habakkuk's trying to capture the shift internally, and he's like, no, it's just not enough that it's changed how I see you, and it's changed how I see the world. No, it's actually changing how I'm moving through the world. It's changing how I'm walking through the world. He's like, the only way I can describe it is I'm not, I'm not struggling. I'm bounding. Like, I've got strength because you are my strength. You are my muscle. You are my breath. You are the energy in my feet. I am able to move. Everyone else is falling apart in pieces, and I am moving through the world with peace. Like, this is a powerful declaration and testimony of what the internal shift of recognizing how broken the world really is, but how beautiful God actually is and how powerful God is can actually do to you as you start to live your life. It changes how you move through your life. You realize all of a sudden, the old you would have slapped your boss when they said that to you. But the new you has a strength it can pull in that has graciousness and mercy attached. The old you would have fallen apart and gone back to the bottle or back to the pills or back to that webpage when you hit that stressor. But the new you has a strength it can pull into you. When you confront that stress or when you walk through that season, the old you would have walked away from that relationship falling apart, but the new you has something inside of you saying, you can do this. You can stay through this. There is something deeper, more alive. You are committed. You are faithful inside of you, whispering to your soul, keep moving forward. He's changed. Habakkuk has felt it, and it's changing how he's moving through life. And this should inspire you and me, not just when we feel like the world is falling apart, but when we step into our world falling apart. This isn't ideal. This is real. This is what God has to extend to all of us. And yet I recognize that sounds pie in the sky. But there is a reason that one of the phrases that kind of comes into the Christian world is take a step of faith. Because I'm being, there are seasons in my life where I'm too paralyzed, I'm too weak to even take a step. God, I can't. God, I just, I, I can't, God. I just don't, I want to I give up. He's like, don't give up, look up. God, I don't have the strength to go all the way. I can't save this marriage, God. I can't keep putting up with how they're treating me. I can't keep dealing with the financial pressure we're walking through. I can't keep dealing with this health challenge that we've got going on, God. I just can't. God's like, I'm not asking you to. I'm asking you to take a step. And what you will find is if you take a step, my strength will be in it. And it'll feel something supernatural. And then you're like, God, I just can't. He's... I'm not asking. Take another step. And it's like, and you ever notice if you take enough steps in the same direction, eventually you look up and you look back and you realize you've come a mighty long way. Now, I need some of you in this room to help me because some of you have walked through these seasons before. Some of you have got stories to tell. Some of you have got struggles that became strengths where God walked you through a childhood. He walked you through that divorce. He walked you through the pain of that heartbreak. He walked you through that addiction. And in that moment, you thought there was no way you could climb that mountain. 
But you've moved on to different mountains now because you already scaled that one. Some of you have done that. We're, we're wrapping up next week in this life planning course that some of you are going through. And the last time we met, I just walked around the room and looked at people's storylines and what they had overcome and what they'd come through and what they navigated. And I'm like, man, I see so much strength in this room. But isn't it true when you go to the gym, the part that's the hardest, the part where you feel the weakest is actually the part that eventually makes you the strongest? It's called maxing out. And what you work out with today eventually becomes what you warm up with tomorrow. Some of you have done extraordinary things in your life, and you're second-guessing yourself in this season, and God has already carried you through the valley. He's already walked you through that river. And some of you are standing at the river for the first time, and there are people in this room who can help you, who can hold your hand and say, I've been through it before. The water is cold, but the God is good. And that's why as a church, we want to be here. We want to be hope in the dark. That's why for women, I want to strongly encourage you. June 18th, we're having our second women's gathering. The first one we had, Shaquana and her team did a phenomenal job. It was powerful. We've got another one June 18th. It's free, encounterchurch.com forward slash women. Because we need each other to be reminded, I've been there. God's done that. And the book of Habakkuk ultimately for us is that reminder from God that there is another in the fire with us. There is another in the struggle who gives us his strength. Who's not like some of our sorry friends who listen to us and be like, well, it stinks to be you. God's like, no, I will walk with you. I will give strength to you. And one day, what you see as a fire will be your story and your song. That is the gift of Habakkuk to us. Is it reminds us that hope in the dark, is an actual thing. And that for some of us right now, we need to be reminded, just take another step. Keep taking that step. You'll eventually step your way out of what you're walking through. Because there's a God walking it through you and with you. And for others, just earmark, write it down. You know, one of those little glassing shattering case, like just say, you know what, June 5th, 2022, go back and listen to this message when things start falling apart. Because there really is hope in the dark. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the way that you came for us and the way that you move through us and bring life to us. And God, thank you for the people who are right now are in standing in the midst of what they think is going to be a test that they will fail and thank you in advance for the testimony they will be able to tell one day of what you did through them. God, thank you for the, the people who are almost about to give up right now. They're almost about to give up in their finances, in their relationships, in their faith, and you're just whispering to them right now, Jesus, take a step of faith. Keep moving forward. I got you. I got this. God, thank you that you have the whole world in your hands, but thank you that you have our world in your hands too. And so may you inspire us. And for those, God, who are walking through good seasons, fruitful seasons, 
I pray that you would help our hearts and our eyes to be sensitive to those who are not. That you would teach our tongues to tell a better story of how you sustained us, how you got us through. And then Jesus, thank you for the people who are here today who who are sitting on the edge and they say, that sounds really nice, but that's not where I am and that's not what I have. I pray that today they would hear you whispering, my child, I loved you. I chased after you. I paved a way for you through the cross and that today would be their step of faith of finding that you're a God whose grace and mercy knows no bounds that there is nothing that they've ever done that can keep you from them or them from you and that their step of faith would be turning to you Jesus finding you and following you and thank you In fact, this this is not ideal. That there is a faith, that there is a strength that is real. That meets us in the hard and the heavy times. And sustains us through all of it. And it's in your name, Jesus, I pray.